Welcome to the Women's Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Sheridan House. We continue today in the series, Reflection, a Study of Philippians. If you missed any part of this series, you can find it and others online at sheridanhouse.org backslash WBS. We hope you enjoy today's lesson. It's great to be with you guys. As I said, I love the Wednesday morning crowd because you guys are awake and you're starting your day. Sometimes we're a little tired in the Tuesday night crowd, so... It's great to be with you, and I just want you to know from the outset that it's amazing how God um, gives Bob and Rosemary this time away, but he always, always has a a lesson that I need to learn. So basically, you guys are just getting to listen in on what God taught me this week. So um, it's just, it's it's an amazing thing. And I wanted to start off with um, Psalm 133.1, and if you've been doing this Bible study for several years, you might remember Rosemary did a whole... um, book on the Song of the Ascents, and so she spent a whole week on Psalm 133. And we're not going to do that today, but I wanted to lead with this verse, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is. And I think I've done this before when I've been with you, but sometimes it's good to look at what, what would we insert the opposite words. So behold how bad and painful it is when brothers and sisters don't dwell in unity. So this is such an important topic. It could be unity in our churches as the main topic today, but our families, our workplace, that we would just live a life of, of being peacemakers. But I want to start off with an illustration, and this could be the only time that I use a sports illustration. But um, given that um, our city just hosted the Super Bowl and that the Kansas City Chiefs were in it, I thought this was a great quote by a former coach, Herman Edwards, He said, when it came to his thoughts on teamwork, he said, the players that play on this football team will play for the name on the side of the helmet, not on the back of the jersey. And I thought, even I can understand that sports illustration. (laughs) They'll play for the name on the helmet, not the name on the back of the jersey. And it's a great illustration that as believers, we're all on the same team. We're all on the same team. So Paul's summarizing his thoughts here. And letter A on your outline is therefore... And when we see the word therefore, what do we do? What's it there for? Um, Philippians 4.1, he's saying, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He loved them. They were proof of his ministry, the fruit that had been born. And in the last verses, the therefore... In chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, he had been talking about examples, examples that they could follow, but he also said, I even say this with tears, there are those that are examples of being enemies of the cross. And then he goes on in verses 20 and 21, right before this, to remind them that their home is in heaven, their citizenship is in heaven. And he's saying, in light of that, therefore, we're going to talk about what it looks like to live unified while we're here. I want to give you a quote by Warren Wearsby. This is the most affectionate and endearing language Paul Paul used anywhere. Brothers, beloved, longed for, my joy and crown. This is what they were to Paul as he exhorts them to stand firm. But B, what are they to stand firm in? The first thing again being examples. Not perfect, but growing in their walk with God. And keeping in mind that no matter what, we're an example. It's a matter of if we're going to be an example for better or for worse. And just like that song said, the world will know we're Christians by our love. They desperately need to see that. Two, the joy and wonder of our true citizenship. 
Rosemary talked, I think it was just last week, about the TSA, the Transportation Security Administration, and that we have something far greater, that we have the sacrifice atoned, TSA, the sacrifice atoned, that no matter what happens, our real home is in heaven. Sometimes we have way too many expectations of this earth that God didn't promise. Three, that we would be being transformed by the Lord Jesus. Rosemary also said this, that we should hate actions contrary to scripture because that is what put Jesus on the cross, our sin. And sometimes we can have a casual attitude towards sin because we know God will forgive us. But may that never be the case, being transformed by the Lord Jesus to the point that we really hate sin. And number four, pressing on to the call of God, being energized by the hope of our calling. Philippians 3.14 says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And James Boyce says, God now commands a visible earthly unity that his children live in harmony with each other. And I brought an illustration. My kids always seem to give me illustrations. Um, and these are my babies. This was, this was then and this is now. And um, you could probably guess that I'm trying to make a point by these pictures that um, sibling rivalry starts young and they usually take turns being the instigator. This one, Macy's just not too sure about her sister. And, um, and you can also tell I dressed them at that stage, this stage not so much. Um, but now we're at a stage where my sweet Kate Every time I want to take a picture, her sister puts her arm around her, and Kate's like, ugh, and I caught it. I caught it, and I'm showing it to you all. And they are just um, arguing a lot, even as recently as this morning, if you can imagine that. So, um, but it's a remarkable thing if they both want the same thing, that they gang up on Mike and I, and they are a force to be reckoned with. And God spoke to me in that this week, that when we as believers are united and we share a passionate love for Jesus, and we have a common goal of advancing the gospel, that we have a great promise to claim. And it's in Matthew 16, 18. It says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That was Matthew 16, 18. And if we can agree on nothing else, we must have the common goal of advancing the gospel. And we're going to see that so clearly in Scripture today in different situations. And this is why, next on your outline, Paul then calls for unity among believers. Our Father wants his children to get along. A on your outline, though, disharmony is a reality. And I love it that the Bible includes an argument because it really lends credibility to the Holy Scriptures that they don't just put in the good stuff, they put in the hard stuff. And in Philippians 4, 2, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. They're both believers, and they labored alongside him for the sake of the gospel, but they've had a disagreement big enough that it, we see it here. And we are beginning to see what a critical issue this is to God and that we have to take it seriously. So number two is how do you handle it when there is conflict? Because it's inevitable. <laughs> a, we can respond in a loving, humble, selfless way. Or B, we can respond in a controlling, arrogant, and stubborn way. And for those of you who are married, you know the vast difference in the outcomes when you choose to disagree in love and humility versus a prideful, self-centered stance. And that can be in any relationship. But I bring up marriage because we are Christ's bride. And in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy 
cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And I love this part, to present her to himself as a radiant church, a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Are we a radiant bride? Are we without wrinkle or without stain or without blemish? And as I was studying for this message, I thought about sometimes the battles we have within our churches, and I thought about a movie called Bride Wars. Some of you guys have seen it. It's a cute romantic comedy, and I tried to think of a, um, a clip to show, but instead I'll just show you the picture to give you the image of two best friends, lifelong dream, both of them, of getting married at the Plaza Hotel in New York in the summer, and all of a sudden, as they both get engaged at the same time and plan their weddings, there's a clerical error, and they get assigned the same day, so somebody's got to move. And the whole movie is just funny antics of them dyeing the other one's hair blue or stealing this or all these funny antics. But in the end, as most movies, happily ever after, they make up and they reconcile. And it's just a cute movie, but what an example for us. We have the happiest ever after waiting for us. We've got to get ready for the wedding the wedding supper of the Lamb, that we would be that radiant bride. Yet all too often there's bride wars going on. We grieve the Lord when we live in strife with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but we bring joy to his Father's heart when we get along in spite of our differences for the sake of the call. It's one of the reasons that I love this Bible study. We represent all different churches, and it's a picture of the body of Christ and what it's going to look like in heaven. And we might have different preferences. We might even have doctrinal differences that are minor. But we're all here together because we love Jesus and we love his word. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And um, I saw another beautiful example of this this week. And I actually attended two funerals within a 24-hour period, both for godly men who had lived long lives of service to God and given back to their community. And on one of them, um, it was unique. He had lived a long life, and so he had been at three different churches in the course of his lifetime and invested in each of them heavily. And so at his funeral, there was one choir made up of three different churches. And it was this beautiful picture of unity. And without going to detail, those churches had been through some stuff together at different times. But they were all up there singing with one voice for God. It was a picture of the church with a capital C. And I know it brought joy to the Father's heart. But going back to Paul, what was happening? Again, Yodia and Syntyche, he said, agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I love our small group times, and I love the time that the table leaders get to have together beforehand. And last night, we were looking at the word, my version said fellow workers, but another woman's version in the NIV said yoke fellow, and another one in the um, New King James said plowman. And um, Evelyn shared that in her notes in her Bible under yoke fellow, that it was a picture. You know how Bob has this equally yoked thing in his office and Rosemary's brought that? Well, this is looking at that same picture but that to move forward, they would bo both ox would have to have their head to the ground. And I thought, what a picture of humility, bowing before God in prayer to move forward. And he's saying, I need you guys. I need you to help us move forward as the body of Christ. And I also think it's no mistake that he says, whose names are written in the book of life. So it's almost his tone could possibly be, you're going to be together forever, so work it out now. <laughs> work it out. Um, so one, who were these women? 
um, as we studied early on, the Philippian church most likely began as a women's prayer group, and they were most likely a part of that. Um, I think of our prayer team that uh, Pam leads and the impact that you could even, we, we won't see this side of heaven, the impact of that. And these women, as they were in that initial prayer group, probably never realized the impact that they were getting to be a part of. But they were most likely part of that original group. And as we look at verse 3, it teaches us that a common faith in Christ and a common desire to serve the Lord doesn't necessarily resolve or avoid differences, right? So he gives us this example. We need to know that people who love the Lord can disagree and that we're all human. And I think it's a good thing for us to remember in election year too, right? And I'm a pretty political person, but we're going to have people we love dearly who disagree with us, and it's okay. They can still love the Lord. We don't have to question their salvation. And again, the key is how we disagree. You can have a productive argument. There's debate classes in high school and college, but it should be what's the fruit of this conversation? What's the fruit of this debate? Two, what were the key phrases used? Paul said, as you stand firm, as you stand firm in the Lord, concentrating on your relationship with him, the whole entire key to this whole entire lesson, if you had to leave at this moment, is keeping your eyes on Jesus, standing firm. We're going to give an illustration later of being in tune with God. But the bottom line is we have to turn our eyes on Jesus so that the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. No matter how big the problem is, it dims in comparison to our Lord and Savior. In the NLT, it says, or be on your outline, it says, agree in the Lord. In the NLT, it says, settle your disagreement. In the Living Bible, it says, be friends again. It's interesting that he doesn't reveal what the argument was about, the same way he didn't reveal what his thorn in the flesh was. And I think that as women, we can so often go through the comparison game. And I know in my humanity, if I knew what their argument was about, and I was trying to learn from this, I'd say, oh, but you don't know how big my disagreement is, or you don't know how big my problem is, or with Paul with the thorn in his flesh, but you don't know what I've been through. And so God in his goodness to us is saying it's not about the issue, it's about your heart. We love Jesus, and therefore we're a family. And we have rifts in our family too, right? But we're committed to solving them. And rifts in our biological families can pierce our hearts. Um, I know so many moms who are struggling with their daughters right now, which scares me. As a mom of girls, I've seen my family go through it. Um, but we, we love those loved ones, even when we have to release them for a time. We love them unconditionally. And God's saying, your eternal brothers and sisters in Christ, love them unconditionally and try to be quick to resolve. Corals can't be swept under the rug. We have to deal with them. We're called to be peacemakers in the Sermon on the Mount. But we have to trust God. We have to, we can't create unity. And we're going to talk about that later too. Our job is to preserve it. Um, Rosemary tells a story in her notes about Bob having a football injury in high school. And he ignored it to the point where it probably wasn't even that big of an injury. He might make it sound like it if he were here, right? Um, but... <laughs> To the point that he ignored it, and they, he practically lost his leg because the infection had to be cut out. And something might start off relatively small, but if we ignore it and we sweep it under the rug, it grows and it festers, and it could be the loss of a limb, the loss of a part of the body. We have to be help each other. And sometimes it takes a community to preserve unity. 
Philippians 4.3, he says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Sometimes we need a third party to intervene. And we don't know exactly who that other true companion was, but a lot of scholars think it was possibly the Philippian jailer that had Paul had led to Christ during the miraculous earthquake that set Paul free, but also threatened that daily jailer's life. So they had been through a lot together. And he mentions Clement, who was a prominent man in the church. He's saying, come alongside me, get involved. This is too important for you to sit on the sidelines. What a lesson for us today. Again, that we would be a bride getting ready for a wedding. We can be strong in our opinions, but we can't divide up into factions over the little things. We can be technically right in a situation, but if we go about it in the wrong way, we're wrong. So it's timing, it's prayer, lovingly with listening ears presenting our thoughts. And you've heard it many times where the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12 says it again, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And I've heard that my whole life, but I'd never really heard someone say that God is the brain. I mean, it's kind of obvious, the brain's in your head. But um, I've been following the testimony of a family in Georgia um, that are friends of a friend. And it was a young girl, I think 16 or so, very athletic, kind of the, just the all-around amazing, godly Christian girl at this school. And she started just showing some symptoms. They said, we probably need to go to the doctor. You're having some headaches, different things. And they go, and it turns out that this young, beautiful, seemingly healthy girl has um, brain cancer. And so her life is turned upside down in a matter of days, and they absolutely have to cut that out. And as you know, anytime you have um, surgery in that region, it's going to affect the brain. And given that the brain controls everything, this young girl has had to learn how to walk again, to talk again, to feed herself. It's a picture of us that the brain, let God control everything. Let him, whatever part of the body that you're in, yield to him. So many times we want to try harder, and as women, we have good intentions, and we want to fix things, and he just says, yield. Let God be in control. He is sovereign. He hasn't missed a thing. Galatians 5, 14 through 15, so many scriptures, and a lot of them are in Philippians, but they're written by Paul to all the different churches. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other destroyed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And I give my girls this illustration. I might have given it to this week even after a little argument. And I said, you know, girls, if you remember nothing else, remember the cross. And you've got one beam pointing up to heaven, love Jesus. And you've got the other beam reaching out, love others. Love Jesus, love others. If you get that down, that's the goal of life. Jesus said those are the most, most important thing. Though we're diverse in our gifts, we have to be characterized by unity, working together. So in summary, what are the principles behind the why of unity? Why does this matter so much? And number one, it's the advancement of the gospel. Philippians 1, 12, and 18 says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. 
And that last verse is kind of, it can almost be confusing, like false motives, and basically God knows there's people out there preaching that their time's going to come where they'll be revealed, but he allows it. He allows sin to go on for a while in some situations, and God still uses that person because all of us are messed up. And he still uses it. He said, by whatever means the gospel is being preached. Sometimes we disagree on the methods that church use. Paul's giving us the answer right here. You, you stay focused on me. I'm going to use this to advance the gospel. It is in paramount importance that our personal preference and feelings and agenda pale to the importance of the gospel going out. And as many of you know, Paul um, had, as he was Saul of Tarsus before he was Paul, and he was out murdering Christians. So you can imagine that after his conversion, some people were very skeptical that there had really been a change. And Barnabas comes alongside him as an encourager, and he tells the fellow believers, let, let him into the circle. He's okay. He's on our side. So Barnabas was very, very instrumental in Paul becoming a part of the ministry. So there was a close, close friendship there. And on their first missionary journey together, John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, had gone with them. He accompanied them. However, along the way, John Mark decided to return to his home in Jerusalem. And again, the reason is not specified. But because of that, we see later in Acts 15, 36 through 41, it says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. They're going back to see how discipleship is going. Barnabas wanted to take also John called Mark, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. The dissension between Paul and Barnabas wasn't a doctrinal issue. It was a personal preference. But God used even that hurtful, painful division to advance the gospel because two territories got missionaries, right? They parted their separate ways. And even in their hurt and their disappointment and their disagreement, they didn't let it hinder the grace or the advancement of the gospel. The beautiful part of this, make sure you write this down because you have to read it later on your own because I just think it's so beautiful. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, and I had never seen this until this week, that this is Timothy's final letter. He's, he knows his time is coming, and he's very emotional in it, and you see what his final wishes are. And he says, Do your best to come to me soon, Timothy. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And I could almost cry hearing that. It, we don't know. This is 18 years later about. Maybe they reconciled before then. But 18 years later, Paul, who refused to go on a missionary journey, with young John Mark says, the last five things I want in this life are Timothy, Mark, my cloak, books, and parchments, it says in the next verse. We don't get to see the whole story, but God had done a work in their hearts. So there can be a time of separation, but I love it that the Bible lets us see that at some point there was a reconciliation and that John Mark, who he had found useless, useful, useless, he now says, he's very useful to me for the ministry. Beautiful, 
beautiful picture that I hope encourages your heart. We see a similar situation between the two great preachers of the Great Awakening in the 18th century, George Whitfield and John Wesley. They were winning thousands of converts to the Lord. They did open-air style meetings in fields, and 30,000-plus people would attend. And they worked together. Uh, John, or George Whitfield was an amazing orator. People that didn't even have an interest in the gospel message would come just to get speaking tips from him. Charles Wesley was also um, great at preaching the multitude, but he was kind of the organizer. They were complementary in ministry. God was blessing their work, and then a doctrinal rift happens. So with Paul and Barnabas, it was more of a personal preference, a judgment call. But in here, there's a doctrinal difference. And they were so diverse in their opinions, and they couldn't resolve it. They actually took out ads in the paper against each other. So it's kind of like their Facebook. Like sometimes we go to Facebook to put our, our feelings out there. They took personal ads out in the paper to say, this is why he's wrong. But can I tell you, it says that people thought these men hated each other. Until one reporter asked Whitfield, tell me, Mr. Whitfield, do you expect to see Charles Wesley in heaven? <laughs> no, answered Whitfield. He's going to be so close to the throne, and I'm going to be so far back that I'll never see him. <laughs> and at Whitfield's request, his funeral sermon was preached by none other than his former opponent, John Wesley. Isn't that beautiful? God is so good. Different views doctrinally that they never agreed on, different flavors in ministry, but they had unity and love even in their diversity. What an example for us. The most important principle is number two, that Jesus calls us to unity. Jesus calls us to unity. In the longest prayer of Jesus in the Gospels, just as uh, Paul had his farewell letter in 2 Timothy, this was Jesus's farewell prayer. And he says in John 17, 9 through 11, I pray for them. I'm not saying, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And if you skip down to verse 23, he says, I am them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them as you loved me. They'll know we are Christians by our love. The very first song that we listen to. And it's as if he's saying, if the world can see you get along, they'll know there must be a God, yeah. right? Yeah. Because we are so different. And the world is so desperately in need of us having a unified voice as that choir that day to proclaim the grace and the truth of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And it can sound like I'm teaching two different things because we're going to talk about being a peacemaker in a minute, but this verse says that we don't create the unity. It says that we're maintaining it. And I think that that's a really important principle. When we get saved, we don't create a family. We join God's family. We become a part of it. And too often we try to force unity in our timing when authentic unity can never be manufactured. Instead, God says, preserve the unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has created our unity, and it's our job to preserve it. 
And the best illustration I can give you of that is actually from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they ever possibly could be, were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. What an amazing concept that, again, it's not about us trying harder, thinking about the person we don't get along with. It's, I'm going to tune into the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm going to let the things of the earth grow strangely dim. I'm going to let him do his work in me. It's not about trying harder. It's yielding, being in tune with the Father, and he will set things right with our fellow believers. Number three, people are observing. We've said this already, and in Acts 2, 42 through 47, we see the result of unity. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. It doesn't mean they had everything in common personally. It means they shared everything. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We are in a lost place in need of Jesus. We need people to be added to the church daily. That's the why. People are observing. There's a wonderful um, ministry that I think that Rosemary has mentioned before here called Church United. And it's a group of senior pastors that I believe get together monthly from dozens of churches, different doctrines, different styles, but they come together. And they just came off of a 40-day commitment to pray every single day for church with a capital C in our community to experience revival. Beautiful picture of what God wants to see us do. Beautiful, beautiful example that they would pray for corporate revival, not just at their own church. Number four, love for one another reveals our love for God. 1 John 1, 7, and then verses 10 and 11 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Again, be in tune with God and he will cultivate that love in your heart. Check your own heart. We need to give grace to others the way that grace has been given to us. So those are the principles. B, what are the strategies behind the how of unity? So one, we are called to be peacemakers, to cut out the infection. Matthew 5, 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. It doesn't say peacekeepers, so we are to take action, but how? And I love that the Bible, this is one of the clearest places in scripture that they give actual instructions of here's what should be in your policy and procedures manual. Number two, we're to talk privately to them, but if need be, to bring someone along. We're to talk privately to them, but if need be, bring someone along. Matthew 18 spells it out for us, verses 15 and 16. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. 
But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And I think that first one is really tricky. So often as women, and I've done it, I go to a mentor first to say, what should I say? Sometimes it's a misunderstanding. And when you go to the person, then you have to go back to the person you talked about and say, oh, well, it really wasn't that. Go to the person first. God, now, if you're in tune with God and he says, go get advice, that's one thing. But nine times out of ten, go to the person first. Keep it between the two of you because that's how division starts. It's kind of like when you're married and you might um, want to complain about your spouse possibly. You never tell your mom, right? Because you'll forgive your husband, but she won't forgive your husband. <laughs> so keep it between the two of you when at all possible. And when it says, take one or two others along, prayerfully bathe that in prayer. Because what starts as good intention can easily turn into gossip. So bathe it in prayer. Get someone who's going to see both persons' points of view, a mediator. And even now, in an amicable divorce, they have a mediator instead of an attorney. And they sit in a room, and they just figure it out and split it all up. If the world can do that, how much war should we as the church be able to sit down with a mediator and work things out. Three were to be quick to listen. James 1.19 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It's difficult, but it is so, so worth it. I confess that so many times when I'm in a conversation, I'm kind of three-quarters listening, but I'm like 25% thinking, well, this is what I'm going to say next, or this is how I'm going to respond. Not even in an argument, just in a regular conversation, we're just so self-centered left to our own device. So listen, and honestly, in listening, you learn to ask the right questions. And um, every month, um, our leadership team at the school has a meeting, and there's about 10 to 12 of us in the room, and sometimes I can be too quick to speak. And I've learned so much from watching a colleague that's a little bit older than me, and she doesn't say much, but when she does, she captures everyone's attention because they know it's going to be good, because they know she's been listening the whole time, and she's going to give feedback that you don't always have without listening carefully, active listening. And so much of our communication is not face-to-face -face anymore. It's on a text. People don't see body language on a text or a voicemail or certainly on social media or even on the phone. Give that person, let them be the most important person in the room when you're talking to them. Give them all of your attention. Wherever you are, be all there. That's one of my things I'm trying to focus on. Wherever you are, be all there. Number four, we're to ask for wisdom. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. We know Solomon was credited as the wisest man who ever lived. And you know why? Because he asked for wisdom. God said, I'll give you anything. And he asked for wisdom. And we know Solomon made a lot of terrible mistakes. But God in his grace still refers to him as one of the wisest. And Andy Stanley wrote a book called The Best Question Ever. And if you don't have time to read the book, I'm going to tell you the best question ever. He says, in light of your past experience, current future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do? Too often we're asking the wrong question. We're saying, is it right? Is it wrong? The best question ever is, is it wise? Is it wise in light of my past experience, my current future hopes and dreams? What's the wise thing for me to do? Number five, we're to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16 says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, 
that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. John Corson, um, one of my favorite pastors, says it this way. Love without truth is hypocrisy, like a blaze without a light, while truth without love is brutality, like a fire without warmth. I thought that was a great illustration. Love without truth is hypocrisy, like a blaze without light, while truth without love is brutality, like a fire without warmth. And we're going to talk more about grace and truth in just a few minutes. Six, we're to address issues quickly. And I feel like this probably was one of the questions you talked about around your table. I know we did in the leaders' meetings. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Timing is really important. We don't let wounds fester. But um, I think one of Bob's sayings, or at least my husband thinks it is, is like, don't talk about things after 10 o'clock at night. So if I try to talk to my husband about something after 10 o'clock, nope, Bob said, no, don't, don't do it, not listening. So um, we need to be wise. Don't let it fester, but also pick the appropriate time. I just finished a book um, called Rhythms of Renewal by Kelly Lyons, and she says this about not giving the devil a foothold. She says, a foothold is a strong first position from which further progress can be made. An intruder doesn't need your whole heart, just a crack wide enough to get a foot in the door. When we keep a record of wrongs against each other time and time again, that crack becomes a wide open door for the enemy to do what he does best, to steal, to kill, and to destroy, sometimes we, the ones we love the most. Apologizing for the wrongs that we've committed paves the way for forgiveness, and again, at the right time. And just like all of God's commandments for us, it's for our own good. If you look at the research on people that hold on to bitterness, it affects your blood pressure, it affects your ability to sleep, your stress level, your anxiety. Bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. You're slowly killing yourself. So don't let that person have that power over you. A big part of that number seven is we're to watch what we say. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Again, when you're giving that person in front of you your active listening, your attention, what is it that they need in that moment? Sometimes, again, there are right words to say, but they might be a baby Christian, or they might be focusing on something else right now. Build them up according to their needs, that it may benefit them. What's the fruit of this? One of the very names of Jesus is the Word. And um, when I used to share the gospel in public schools through First Priority, um, often I would pick John 1.1 to share the gospel. And not explained, it can be one of the most confusing verses in Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I would break it down, and I would say, what's a word? It's a way that you communicate. It's a way that you express yourself. So I said, Jesus was the communication of God. He came down personal to express two things, the grace of God and the truth of God. He was full of grace and truth. And like John Corson's quote, you can't have one without the other. You need both. And how sad that often one of the very names of God, the word, we use our words as weapons, and they hurt and they destroy. And many of you have probably seen this illustration before, but I felt like it was worth the visual again. I brought a tube of toothpaste. 
and a plate. And um, this tube of toothpaste represents our words. The things that we say, um, sometimes it can be lies, it can be yelling, it can be speaking in anger. Think in your own heart, like, what's the last thing that you said that maybe you regret? Um, I think another common problem in our day and age is that people have constant accessibility to us if we'll let them. Our phones don't end the workday at five. Um, we're getting texts from friends. Sometimes the day starts out that way. And by the end of the day, you can be so careless with your words. And the toothpaste is here as an illustration of once they come out, you can't get them back in. There's no getting this toothpaste all back in the tube. And I would just encourage you, again, wisdom. I myself am thinking right now of a moment when I picked up the phone at 5 o'clock during dinner, bad idea, right? And not knowing what the question would be, answered quickly, and not mean, it wasn't my intent to hurt the person, but I answered carelessly. And that relationship, I feel like, is still recovering. So don't be afraid to set boundaries. Give yourself the space. Give yourself the time. Don't give the devil a foothold, but at the same time, we need to count our words because you can't take them back. You probably still remember things that kids said to you in high school or that your spouse may have said to you in a heated moment. You can't take it back. So we have to be wise, wise, wise with our words. We type things on social media that we would never say in person. And I see it over and over again. And again, I'm not perfect, but think about, will the words that I speak, write, or type bear fruit? What's my goal? Sometimes I'll see things, people put something out there, and it's like, what's the goal here? How is this going to bear fruit? And then, quite often, in the Christian community, a, a battle will ensue on a page for the world to see that desperately needs to see. They'll know we are Christians by our love. And the last point is we're to exemplify the fruits of the Spirit. We're to bear fruit with our words, with our actions. We're to exemplify the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, through 23 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And again, it's not about us trying harder. It's letting the Spirit take over. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That as you tune into Christ, that you yield to him. You don't try harder because we're never going to be perfect. We yield to him. We stay in tune with him. And he's the one that bears fruit in us. And I wanted to close our time today. We've referenced how Jesus' farewell prayer spoke of unity quite a bit. I've also shared with you how our senior pastors have been praying for the last 40 days for revival in our community in South Florida that we would see many saved. And so I wanted to end our time today a little bit differently. We've talked about unity, and unity often um, is, involves confession, and confession is the spark to revival. So I would love for us to just end our time today with a time of corporate prayer. Um, if you missed the leaders meeting, table leaders, right now, if you would ask just one person from your table to volunteer to pray, and for about two minutes, you'll pray on your own, and then I'll close us out. But just corporately pray. And while you're listening to the prayer, also enjoy the sound of us all lifting up in one voice the same prayer request. So please take a moment to pray for our churches, for our city, for our land, for revival, and that God would use us to be a small part of it.